Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ian Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband, our daf of the day, Masachet Sota, daf Yud Zion, page 17. We have two Mishnayot on this daf, beginning at the very top of Amad Aleph and continuing the second one is on Amad Bet. We're going to divide them and hopefully conquer. Balo lichtov at Megillah. So the coin comes to write the scroll that is going to have the name of God on it, which the which the um, Sota woman is going to then put in, or I, I'm not sure, I guess the Kohen puts it in the water, and it's going to be about the Sota, and this is the whole issue of what what is he right and what is it going to say. From what is the place that he's writing, meaning from where in the Torah does he write? So he writes, He starts from the verse that if no man has been with you, with you, this woman, Right. And the verse goes on. Right. If you have not gone astray, you know, and you will then be free from this water of of bitterness that causes the curse. Right. All of this is I'm reading, you know, outside of the text. But we did go through these verses at the very beginning of Masachat Sota. And it goes on to say, and if you have gone astray while under your husband and then again, the verse continues. Then you will be tame, and because some man who is not your husband has what he doesn't do, the Eno Kotev, he does not write, he does not write that the Kohen will cause the woman to swear and what the Kohen is supposed to say to her. Right, he does write that oath, and then um, the water is supposed to come and make her belly swell. He doesn't write the end of that same verse from the Torah. The woman will say, Amen, Amen. It's interesting to me that the Mishnah kind of literally goes through the verses and says, Okay, from this point to this point the, is the citation that's going to be on the text, uh, the text that goes in the scroll. And these other points, it, it, the, the mission makes a point of saying, don't write those parts, um, which I find a little fascinating. Like, it makes it a much more precise citation, to be sure, but I feel it has, it smacks a little bit of like, sorcery and spells and things like that which are so foreign to Judaism to begin with this idea that like you can write this but or you must write this but do not write that the Mishnah goes on Rabbi Yossi says he does not interrupt between the verses meaning he should he write the entire passage without the the omissions that the Tanakhama says he should omit now, now we're getting somewhere, right? Now I understand this machloket that we have, you know, these are the verses from the Torah that talk about the Sota, and we understand why the Torah wants to leave some of the portions out because it's kind of the the byplay. It's not the oath itself. It's the what's happening from the Kohen, between the Kohen and the woman um, in the context of this writing. And then Rabbi Yossi's position of, you know, don't interrupt between the verses and write the whole thing also makes sense even though it's going to include some of those, like, as I say, stage directions, as it were, because because it doesn't feel right to break the verses themselves. Rabbi Hudomer, a third view here, right? 
כל עצמו אינו כותב, אלא ייתן השם אותך, אותך, ייתן השם אותך לעלה ולשבועה וגומר, ובאו המים המערים האלה במייך. So Rabbi Huda says, really, he's going to write really nothing more than simply the curses that record in the very last verses from the whole section of the Torah, um, you know, where, up until the point where her belly is going to swell and so on. And he doesn't write the play-by-play. But he, Rabbi Huda's um, position is more minimalistic than the Tanakhama's view, which has much more much more verse, much more like do write this, don't write that, of that section, in, which is of course in marked contrast with Rebiosi's maximalist approach, we could say where he says just write the whole thing and don't interrupt the verses. Now, the real question is what's the point of this dispute from the these sages? And that's the Gemara's question. But what are they what are they disagreeing about? They're disagreeing about the understanding of the verse when the Kohen said when the verse says that the Kohen will write these curses in a scroll, right? What is quote these curses that needs to be written down? What's gonna be enough? What's gonna be too much? What's gonna be not enough? Rebbe Mayer Savar, now Rebbe Mayer is understood to be the Tanakama. So his rationale is alot, that word alot meaning curses is referring to the actual curses. Alot mamash. Ha'alot lerabot klalot ha'baot mechmat brachot. So that the curses are the things that are come together um, in all of this process. And then eila lemiute klalot shebimishnah torah. And rather when it says eila, so that's going to kind of exclude other curses that are found in Sefer Devarim. Mishnah Torah is the, the sage, the chazalic word for the for Sefer Devarim. Ha'elah lemutei tzavat v'kabalot amen. Tzavat v'kabalot amen. And then again, when we say ha'elah, let's exclude those commands that are specific in the Sota passage and would have the amen v'amen that that the, the Tanakhama says, don't say that, don't include that in the text. Rabbi Yossi, Kulu Kitaka Amart, Et Larabot, Savaot Vakabalot. Rabbi Yossi understands it to be all, right? Everything should be in there, all of the curses. And and that, like, the very fact that it says et, this word, we know that it's like a word that indicates a direct object in Hebrew, but it doesn't have its own real meaning, but it sometimes is used to, used to interpret the text to say, Ah, we're going to include more here. We're going to include something else. We're going to include also those commands and the acceptances, and they also have to be in that in that scroll. Rabbi Meir, a team lodarish, but Rabbi Meir in general doesn't do that with the word et etim lodarish. He doesn't he doesn't interpret it. He doesn't use it to include other extra things. And what about Rabbi Yehuda? Rabbi Yehuda darish lohu. He wants to keep everything to exclude everything else, right? There has to be a minimal amount written down, but no more. So therefore, alot, alot mamash, curses, it means the real curses, actual curses, ha alot, the fact that it says the curses, so it's going to exclude some of the klalot that could otherwise be written down, 
Ela, and the word Ela, is going to exclude the curses that are found in the Mishnah Torah. So he's going to exclude those other things. Now, what's strange here, of course, is that sounds very much like the opinion of the Tanakhama. So then what's different about the two of them, the Gemara is going to answer. Rabbi Meir, Maishna, Ha, Ha, Hey, Demarbi, Bey, or Maishna, Hey, I'm sorry, Hi, hey, demayid bay. How do you tell the difference between the hey that is coming to include and the hey that is coming to exclude? And the answer is really that this is a matter of different interpretations, that they have different possibilities. The text here of the Gemara goes on, it continues to, to explicate this and to, to spell it out, you know, to the extent that we understand why Rabbi Mayer would um, infer the positive statement as compared to the negative statement. But that's it. Meaning like the, the, these three different views in the Mishnah are then explicated, I would say very carefully in the Gemara and, and we're left with a rather nice package. The very end here says, uh, of this sugya says, Rav Tanchum Hinaki Ketiv. Rav Tanchum says that Hinaki, right, that the woman should go free if she hasn't been with any man and that same word, hinaki, can also be understood to be hinaki. You should choke. <coughs> Excuse me. And it goes on to mean that, potentially, so that it has that dimension of being a curse for Rebbe Mayer, or the flip side of you can go free um, if, if, in fact, she can go free. Look, I think it's interesting that there's such an extensive machlokas over this particular issue. You would think what was written on the scroll would sort of be like a misoa or something that was pretty clear or evident what it is. I, I, I think it shows how not in practice this particular uh, ritual was. I mean, obviously it wasn't done by the time it's being written about here with the Mishnah and the Gemara because the Beit HaMikdash is long gone. But even the fact that what was written on it was not preserved is very interesting and, and results in a three-way machlokas. Right. It's and it's I feel like there's broad strokes of the machlokas and then very subtle, you know, very tiny strokes also to to refine that machlokas. Yeah, look, each one of them has their reason for how they get to where they get to that opinion. But you just would think that's something that sort of was known or was common knowledge or had somehow been preserved. And I, I guess it really had not been preserved, which is interesting. Um, I'm going to move on now to the next Mishnah, uh, which is right in the bottom of Amad Aleph and continues on to Amad Bet. Um, and uh, it continues with this description of how the scroll was actually written. Right. So it's not allowed to be written on uh, a wooden tablet. Below al Hanayar, not on papyrus. Below al Hadif Dirat, an unfinished parchment. Ella al Hamigila. It has to be written on like regular parchment scroll. Shenamar Besefer, because the Pasuk says Besefer. And whenever it says Sefer, and this is Bamidvar chapter 5, verse 23, that's the word for this type of finished parchment. Beinoko Tablo Bekomos can't write it with gum below be kan kantum uh with kan kantum which is ferrous sulfate below nor with anything that actually becomes absorbed into the parchment itself and leaves basically you know an indelible mark 
right? Elabidio has to be with ink because in other words, it needs to be something that's erasable, right? Because where the Pasuk says uh, that it has to be in the same Pasuk here in Bamidbar chapter 5, verse 23, that it has to be erased. Right? Writing that is capable of being erased. And then what follows is a discussion here of six statements of other requirements uh, that you have to have. It, it can't be written at night. Um, if you write it out of sequence, uh, if you write it before she took the oath for herself, if he writes it as a letter, like in other words, not with the lines, um, then it's also not valid. Uh, the fifth one is if he wrote it on two pages, like or two columns, like the way we write a typical Torah scroll today. Um, or if he wrote one letter um, and erased it and then wrote the next letter and erased it you know, didn't like write it all out and then wrote it. So these are sort of six things that it talks about uh, that, you know, were all different, that are all things that would invalidate the scroll. Tomorrow we'll see a, a series of questions. Uh, we'll start with a very interesting question of Rava, uh, you know, about if two different scrolls and their erasings get mixed up. But at least at the beginning, the Gemara starts with different things that might invalidate that scroll. That's our Dr. Discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 